0: hello everybody and welcome back to our bible study series on the book of romans yes it's been three weeks but advent is over christmas has passed we are at the tail end of the christmas season coming on epiphany this week and now we get to resume this bible study series Now, if you hear a little bit of vibrating, a little bit of purring, that is because my poor old Maine Coon here is very, very cold where we are, so he is demanding to sit in my lap. I apologize for that lapse in audio quality here, but he also likes hearing the Bible, shouldn't we all? But anyway, if you have a Bible handy, please open it up to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 12 today. And with that, a little bit of background. Three weeks ago, we were starting in Romans chapter 12, which is how Christians live as members of the body of Christ. If we are truly God's Israel today, the body of Christ, his ecclesia on earth, we do have to understand how we treat one another and how we conduct ourselves as children of God. So with that, we first started talking about the self. How do we renew our mind? How do we discern what is the will of God? How do we engage in what St. Paul basically would define as pietism? And then he talks in verses three through eight about how if you are a part of the body of Christ, then here is how we treat one another in accordance with the gifts that God has given us, the specific callings and charismata, or spiritual gifts, that our Lord blesses us with for the sake of loving others. And with that, we will be able to start in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, let's address the elephant in the room before we move on and go through this passage verse by verse. Almost the entirety of Romans 12 is in the imperative. Here is what you have to do. Here is what you must do. Here is what life ought to be like for you. It feels overwhelming. In the first few verses, here he is telling us, here's the attitude you have to have, here's the motivation that you have. And then verses 3 through 8, he says, ah, oh, yes. You're going to need to be humble because God gives you gifts and here is how you execute your duties as a part of the body of Christ with these gifts. And now he says, here's how you love one another, here's how you love your enemies. We have to simplify it like that because if we don't, we are going to be unable to fulfill this apostolic command. So when we restart here in verse 9, he says, let love be genuine. What does he mean by that? St. Paul is basically saying genuine love, agape love, looks like this. It looks like the following. It's a list. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a series of examples of how this works out. In fact, if you go into the Greek here and look at an interlinear, he starts out with just ha-agape, the love, modifies it, genuine or unhypocritical love. That's it. It's like, here is my list entitled, The Genuine Love. Abhor what is evil? Hate evil. Here you are commanded to loathe and despise wickedness. You are supposed to hate sin. If you say out there, oh, I hate pornography, and someone goes, oh, that just means that you you really love it, don't you? You're about to have your Tim Haggard moment. No, you could say, actually, no, the Bible commands me to hate evil, and this is evil, so I hate it. I also hate usury. I also hate theft. I hate murder. And I hate it when people do these things. It makes me very, very, very unhappy. Because of genuine love. Agape love, properly understood and defined, is seeking the good of the other for their own sake. Evil goes against this. Evil is selfish. Evil harms people, even when they are the ones doing the evil. So, abhor it. Hate it. Because it is counter to agape love. If your friend is an alcoholic that is slowly destroying his liver, you should hate his alcoholism. Because it's harming your friend whom you agape love. Hold fast to what is good. We are called to hate evil, to abhor it, to despise it. But to the contrary, we should cling to that which is good. Again, for the motivation of agape love. It is good for my neighbor to receive charity. It is good for my neighbor to have a good marriage. If I am to love my neighbor as myself and to value agape love, then it's important for me to hold to these things with a clinging. Meaning I value it, I seek it, I want that for me and for my neighbors. That is agape love. Now that might sound a little reductionist. Thank God St. Paul does not just leave it at that. We would have a terrible morality if the Christian life was characterized with well, I'm going to dislike bad stuff and like good stuff. We would end up with a kind of wax nose morality at that point. A wax nose agape where each individual is just leaving it up to his own imagination. What is good and what is bad. What he's supposed to hate and what he's supposed to like. But he keeps going. He keeps specifying here. In verse 10, love one another with brotherly Affection. Now, the two words he uses for love one another and brotherly affection are Philadelphia and Philostorge, meaning you show familial love to your fellow Christian with your brotherly love, Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia can be something like a friendship. Christians ought to be uh, nice to one another. As much as we can rag on the seeker-sensitive churches out there, yes, there is a lot of value in being friendly to each other, to being welcoming. But with that, he does include outdo one another in showing honor. Meaning you should never, ever, ever consider yourself to be higher up than somebody and say, You sit over there in the corner. This is my pew. You're not welcome in my pew. No, you should be welcome to them. You should show them respect as a fellow Christian. Somebody baptized into Christ, somebody who is slated to inherit eternal life along with you, rejoice to be around them. Christians should be comfortable around each other, provided they are actually Christians. Now, I understand that there's already going to be an objection. There's so many false believers out there. There are so many heretics Oh my goodness, how can I show brotherly affection to somebody who is not really a believer? One of those liberal Christians, or one of those Christians out there who's just a cantankerous magisterial who thinks I'm going to hell, and so on and so forth. I get it. I understand that objection. But what did St. Paul start this chapter with? He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I would wager that before you withhold brotherly affection or fraternal friendship from somebody, as is occasionally called for in the church, St. Paul says, expel the evil one from among you in 1 Corinthians. Mm -hmm. And yes, the false brothers, the false Christians, are to be shunned. Absolutely. But before you do that, you need to discern it. It cannot be like the world where the distinction between friend and enemy is entirely prima facie. Oh, he goes to that church, therefore I have to hate him. No, it should be really a matter of discernment. Get to know the guy as much as you can before making a decision to extend fraternal Christian love to him. And until you know better, your default should be friendliness. Your default should be brotherly love and welcoming and showing that kind of agape love. Because who knows, maybe they were unworthy of it. Maybe they were unworthy of fellowship, but then they see how you treat them. Jesus says, they will know my followers by the way they love one another. And maybe that causes them to repent and then start re-examining themselves. I've seen that happen. So the default should be friendliness. It should be brotherly affection. You should be friendly to other Christians, But if you get to know them and it does turn out that they are a false brother or a heretic or should be shunned on account of some impenitent sin problem in their life, once you become aware of that, maybe then you can start trying to urge them towards repentance and withholding a bit of that friendliness. But again, should be the default to show them that I love you because you are my brother in Christ attitude. But continuing on here in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now, we cannot say that genuine love is only for how we treat one another. We also want to love God above all. We love God first. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. St. Paul doesn't include this verse as an afterthought, though. He's not saying, oh yeah, love your neighbor, love your fellow Christian, do this, do that, and oh yeah, oh my goodness, I forgot, you need to love God above all. Absolutely not. You do need to love God first, he understands this, but when you are fervent in your zeal for the Lord, when you are not slothful in serving God, then you are not slothful in serving your neighbor. A big part of Lutheran theology in terms of our ethics is that you love God by loving your neighbor. So when you are devoted, you inspire other people to be devoted. When you want to serve God and he tells you go be charitable to other people, that loves your neighbor. I'm almost tempted to say that verse 11 here goes against a lot of the practices of mysticism. There is a time and a place to go in your prayer closet and quietly have devotion to the Lord. We all need that. But your first default understanding of agape love and Christian duty should be external to yourself. It should be loving another person, loving your fellow believers. So when we are not slothful and zeal, when we are fervent in spirit and serving the Lord, The way St. Paul is going to understand this is in helping other people. But there is still some interior stuff here. He continues in verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We do want to rejoice in the hope we have in Jesus Christ, the promise of eternal life. We do want to, well, toughen up, be patient in tribulation, no matter how hard things get. And we want to be constant in prayer. Yes, that does involve the interior life, where we want to be in prayer. We want to be devoted to our Lord. We want to seek his face first. And we want to be faithful to him even when the enemies of the church, the world, the flesh, and the devil, assail our faith. But this also is tied in with love for your neighbor. If you are rejoicing in hope, you are encouraging other people. If you are patient in tribulation, you are helping other people be patient in tribulation. If you are constant in prayer, you will be praying for other people, for your fellow believers and for non-believers to convert to the faith. This is why he caps off this paragraph with contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. They need hope. They need help being patient. They need your prayers. And if you can contribute something in a generous way, if you can give something to them, showing hospitality to them, giving them a bed to sleep on if they need it, giving them a bit of money if they are short on cash, if they need help with the bills, or if they just need food, that is good to do. That is absolutely something that assists your neighbor in his Christian walk. Christians doing this together for one another shows that honor. We outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I understand with all this explanation, I'm taking a complicated passage here that has all these laundry list type things of commandments, and it seems a little bit like I'm adding to it. But ultimately... You can sum all of this up in saying, look out for one another. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's not rocket science. It just takes some getting used to to have this attitude that produces the works that St. Paul is referring to. But he doesn't end there because it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'm going to love Christians. I'm a Christian. I have fellow Christians. I'm going to love them and try to be friendly to them and everything. Sure, we can say that. But then there's bad people. There's people that persecute the church. What do we do with them? He says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oh, no. What do I do with that? I want to put the hurt on these fools, but St. Paul says i got to bless them instead. Um, Okay. What does that look like? Thankfully, this is kind of a list idea as well. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Even if somebody persecutes me, I should show a bit of sympathy for them. I should pray for them. I should try to put myself in their shoes if I can. This ties into the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That includes trying to put the best construction on things. When you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, even if they are persecuting you, you have a cause to show some goodwill. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If I'm going to be a blessing upon those who persecute me, Even if I really don't like them, I need to do my best to live in harmony with them, to come to an understanding with people. Now, obviously, that's not just for people who are persecuting you. That can also be for people that you don't like or you do like. That can be for fellow Christians. That can be for anybody, really. I want to try to be at peace with people, as he will say later, and I don't want to be proud. If I'm proud, then I'm going to have a persecution complex, where even if somebody is not attempting to hurt me on account of my faith, I think they are, because I'm proud, because I have a fragile ego. So he says, never be wise in your own sight. Don't be pope. You aren't the pope. And even if you are the pope, if Pope Francis is listening to this, doubt it, but if he is, Uh, You're not actually wise. You're not actually a super awesome infallible guy. St. Paul is telling you to associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't think highly of yourself more than you ought to. Because if I do, I cannot live in harmony with people. I cannot say that I'm blessing those who persecute me. I'm gonna think that everybody's persecuting me. I'm gonna be paranoid about this kind of stuff. So he says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. If I am humble, if I am truly trusting in God, I'm not going to be getting vengeance on my own account. We will get into more of that in chapter 13, because the state's job is to establish justice here. But we continue on. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Don't give your persecutors an excuse to say that they are justified in persecuting you. If a Christian steals, if a Christian murders, if a Christian stains the name of Christ with his adultery or his coveting, then our persecutors laugh at us and say that they are absolutely justified in doing all the nasty things they do, even if they're not. Truly, they're not. Just because a Christian sins doesn't mean that the state or the non-believers, the world, the flesh, or the devil, have any real justified reason to harm us. But we want to live honorably so there is a crystal clear message sent. You have no excuse to treat me or the church like this, O persecutor. I have been nothing but good to you. Now, he says here... If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's important to keep that in mind because people will occasionally use these verses to say that Lutheran polemics are completely unjustified, that Martin Luther was a meanie head, and he, (laughs) clearly we shouldn't be paying attention to anything a polemicist writes because they're cruel. Not exactly. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Which is more important, to defend my family if somebody breaks into my house, or to love my enemy by letting them do what they want to my house and to my family? Of course, it doesn't depend on me there. I have to go out and fight and protect people. That's, that's what St. Paul is saying. And that includes false teachers, false doctrines, grievous sins, and everything. If you are a minister, as Luther was, and you see Rome attempting to do some really nasty stuff to the people and to the laity and to the church, there is a cause to sharply rebuke that. There is a cause to engage in polemics. But you should use discernment there. St. Paul started this chapter calling for discernment, and we should absolutely use that. There are some people that are so addicted to polemics and feeling good, saying, like, heinous things, that they really aren't justified in it. 90% of the time, they don't use any discernment. They just have an enemy distinction only, and everybody that isn't them or doesn't agree with absolutely everything that comes out of their mouth, uh, well, now they're damned. We have a problem with that, just as much as we have a problem with doormat Christianity that just rolls over and lets the world destroy us. That's not right. The same thing goes for those people that think that they are white blood cells in the body of Christ that are always, you know, they're a hammer looking for a nail, and oh boy, everything's a nail, so I'm just going to rip everything apart, screaming at people. One polemicist recently, uh, in the past eight years or so, drove a kid to suicide because his dad had a sin problem. Yeah. Yeah, he actually had a horde of people harassing that kid, and then the kid killed himself. And that's that's no bueno. That makes us the most repugnant religion to the eyes of the world. And obviously, they're always going to hate us anyway because of the world but is that any excuse to say you are justified in harassing somebody's child come on that's a problem that's taking polemics way 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 too far but we continue on beloved never avenge yourselves He repeats himself. He said, Repay no one evil for evil. And now he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. In case anybody should say, Ah, I'm not repaying evil for evil when I bash this guy over the head. He did something mean to me first, so this is justice. And Paul says, No, that's vengeance, and that's not right. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Let me explain something to you. Is God good at justice? Yes. Is he going to be better at justice than you? Yes. So should you leave vengeance and justice to the Lord? Yes. He's going to be better at it than you. He's going to know what to do better than you. So you should not and shall not seek vengeance for yourself. Do not do that. I understand this is hard. I have quite a few people who have done some really nasty, messed up, ugly stuff to me and to my family and never sought vengeance because I know God can do way worse to them if they don't repent than I could ever do to them. I'm going to give it to God and keep walking with him. And you're going to have a lot more peace in your heart if you do that, if you're not seeking vengeance because you worship a big God. Let him take care of it. To the contrary, St. Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. He's quoting Proverbs here. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If somebody is doing something bad, if they are an enemy to you, if you do something good to them, you have humiliated them. You have harmed their ego. This isn't vengeance. This is just St. Paul and King Solomon before him in Proverbs saying, yeah, you should care about your enemies or care for them when they are in need. But by the way, (laughs) you're going to kind of get them there because you, an enemy of theirs, really messed with them there for a moment. They have to face the fact that somebody showed them kindness even though they hate your guts. Even though they don't want nothing to do with you. And here you are, showing generosity to them. Yeah, it's like putting coals on their head. Hot coals burning their brain and just making them boil. (laughs) But vengeance truly does belong to God. And next week, we are going to explore the primary way in which God accomplishes vengeance and justice here on earth, that is, the state. I can't wait to get the emails and letters and angry responses with that. That's going to be fun. Yeah, let's call that fun. But until then, let's summarize. We want to love our fellow Christians with fraternal Philadelphia love, or Philostorge love, treating them as family. This requires some discernment given that there are false brothers, and St. Paul will specify more in that later on. But we want to show them love and accommodation and friendliness. For our enemies, we want to make sure that we are model citizens, really, that we are Pure in our conduct, that we are still loving, that we are still acting in accordance with God's holy commandments, and never giving them the excuse to persecute us that they so badly want to have. And we don't get vengeance because we trust that God is way better at that than us. And He has said, Leave it to me. And we say, Yes, Lord, I trust you. And then we're going to tie in that to politics next week. All right. Catch y'all next week. Amen and amen.